The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. How's the economy going to recover? Plus, President Trump now trailing in key swing states. What can the administration do to turn it around? And what are Democrats going to do to keep him from getting momentum? And Jason Kelly, Bloomberg's very own Jason Kelly, my previous boss. Yeah, he used to be my boss. Now he's interviewing LeBron James. LeBron, we're going to hear from that interview exclusively for J- Bloomberg's Jason Kelly. He interviewed LeBron James. We're going to play it. Got to play it. Got to play LeBron. Lots to get through, including LeBron James. You don't want to miss it, folks. It's like a business week special with LeBron James. Only right here. Keep it locked. And listen, it's my godson's fourth birthday. Petey Nix, happy birthday, buddy. And as one of our producers on the show just said to me before we got ready, Matt Shirley. Shirley, he goes, Kev. You're going to be able to tell your godson that you passed to LeBron James. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Bloomberg Businessweek's Jason Kelly's exclusive interview with LeBron. Roll tape! LeBron, it seems to be a, a moment where we're all viewing activism in a much broader sense. And I wonder, as a longtime activist, is someone who calls back in, in the interview that you and I had, the three of us had in February, you talked about Muhammad Ali, you know, an amazing activist in his own right. Now, activism is something that we see everywhere. Is this a moment, a special moment and an important moment for activism in your mind? Um, I think it's a special moment in the sense that um, you can be heard. Um, active, activism and, and activists have always been around, um, but people had a closed ear and a closed mind um, and, and didn't want to recognize and didn't want to hear and didn't want to be um, um, knowledgeable about what they were speaking, where they were coming from, um, the passion that they were speaking with. Um, now it, it's it's being heard. People can be heard. Uh, Black Americans, African-Americans, you know, can be heard. Both men and women can be heard um, of what they're passionate about and the calling for help and the calling for we're being, we're just tired. So, you know, I don't wanna say activism is something that's, um, you know, now everyone's doing it. No, it's always been around, but you know, in the in the case of George Floyd and the case of so many other um, innocent lives uh, being taken away, um, they put up a stand and, and now, you know, we're being heard and everyone is being heard, um, not only um, you know, from, from what Muhammad Ali was saying and so many that came before him and so many after him, 
um, but even the local people, the people in the community, because those are the real ones. The, the, the people that's in the communities that's living and walking those streets and, and being racially profiled and being judged every day that they walk in their cities, they're the ones that need to be heard and they're being heard right now. And it's, it's great to see. And so what does it feel like in, in Akron? I mean, you talked about Los Angeles a little bit, but you know, you and Maverick have said often that so much of what animates you started in Akron. You guys met when you were children. And I wonder how this feels there, LeBron. No, absolutely. Um, we always we always recognize where home is and home base, it starts there. You know, having my I Promise School here and understanding the, um, you know, the level of importance with my kids. And, you know, when the pandemic, when, when COVID started, it was, um, it was, it was kind of heartbreaking because I knew that my kids would have to leave the school. We had to shut down our school for a period of time. And I understand how important structure is and hands-on is with my kids in my school. So, you know, that was very troubling times for me and troubling times for our faculty members and, and everyone that had to do with the IPS because, you know, we're so used to having our kids and we, un and we know how important having them in the classroom and having them underneath our, our wing and our, and our guidance um, so we're always paying attention to our hometown and listening to the people, listening to what's going on there. Um, so that is constant every single day, no matter, um, you know, me and Maverick living in Los Angeles. Uh, we, we have hands on and, and, and our ears to what's going on in our hometown of Akron, Ohio as well. Maverick, one of the things that you did during the pandemic that was forced by the pandemic was graduate together. Tell me why that was so important and what was different about it and what it represented for Spring Hill and what it says about the opportunity. Yeah, the, obviously the pandemic unfortunately forced all of students uh, back home. And, and, and as LeBron said, unfortunately the kids, the students at, our, at a school like I Promise, the school is the, well, for a lot of those kids the safest place and where they get the most structure because home is, is tough. And, and, and and especially for seniors, right? High school seniors who didn't, you know, get the chance to graduate and walk across the stage and get the diploma, which is a big moment for all of us. And, and, and even a person like me, it's the only graduation I've ever had, right? It's the only graduation LeBron's ever had. So it's very memorable and it's an important moment in everyone's life. So at the company, we got approached um, uh, by partners to, to come along and produce graduate together and, and do it with, with Lorraine Powell Jobs company. And it was just important that we really over delivered for those students, for those kids. It wasn't about us. It wasn't about the networks. Uh, LeBron did a fantastic job hosting. We were fortunate enough to have uh, President Barack Obama deliver uh, the, the commencement speech, but it wasn't about LeBron. It wasn't about Obama. It wasn't about us as a company. It was about creating a special memorable moment for those students, just like we all, we got the chance to do when we actually got to experience it live. Unfortunately, they didn't. They had to do it in their living rooms with their families. And that's what made me very happy and proud is all the texts that I received from, from families and, and parents who said that was a special moment for my graduating senior. And now they at least have something they can remember it by and we did a t-shirt we wanted to make it as special as possible and do it in the spring hill way which is bring it to life as a as a show on network tv we did an after party on on uninterrupted uh, instagram live channel and we brought a product so we want to really give them a full 360 
moment. So they felt very memorable and something they could always remember just as though if they could do it live and in person. And LeBron, we move from that to more than a vote that was launched officially this week. What does success look like for more than a vote as you look toward November? Um, I think success looks like um, educating uh, the people that's on the grounds in these cities that we're tackling. Um, you know, we've had voter suppression for so for so long. Um, people not understanding um, how they can vote, where they where they can vote, if their vote really counts. Um, you know, in the black community, you know, you always hear "go out and vote," but what you don't understand is who am I voting for? Where can I vote? Uh, how many people am I voting for? What is these votes? mean what do they stand for um so the education side um is what we're most uh, proud about that was lebron james speaking exclusively with bloomberg's jason kelly my previous boss what a great interview jason seriously congratulations on that and be sure to pick up the latest issue of bloomberg business week to get that exclusive interview uh with lebron james and it's online it's beautifully displayed too graphically online very cool very very cool stuff uh, coming up next, we're going to talk with McKinsey. We're going to check in with McKinsey. They've got a new small business report out. What can policymakers do bipartisan-wise to uh, help small businesses? Small businesses are taking the brunt of this economic downturn. We're going to check in with McKinsey and then our very own Bloomberg's Tom Orlick about where the economy is headed for the rest of the year. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, and you are listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. I want to focus on small business because coming up on the program, we're going to check in with Tom Orlick, Bloomberg Economics Chief Economist, and he's the author of the new book, China, The Bubble That Never Pops. And then we're going to check in with Frank Masano about oil and gas and energy. But I want to start with small business because it really is the bedrock of our nation's economy. And Deepa Mahajan... Uh, partner at McKinsey and Company in San Francisco is joining us on the line, and she's the co-author of the Small Business Research and McKinsey's new report on small businesses. Um, and Deepa, I'm so incredibly grateful for you to join us because I read this report when it came out, and I said to Neil, I said we got to get her on the show because it's just so crucial because so much of the focus has been in the markets about big business and financial packages that are going to large companies, but we haven't really talked as much about small businesses. So what did your report find? Yeah, I mean, the report is actually quite sobering. I think, you know, when you look at small businesses in America, about one third of them are actually vulnerable to the impact of COVID-19 and are vulnerable to potentially closing permanently, uh, which I think would really, really be a devastating, you know, impact to our economy and also to our communities. You know, it, it really is quite remarkable. And one of the things in the report that you found, Deepa, is that minority-owned small businesses are actually more at risk. What, did you, what can you tell us about that? That's exactly right. I mean, when you think about which businesses are at risk, you're going to look at the impact that COVID-19 is having on their revenue 
and then the financial situation that those businesses are in going into the crisis. And unfortunately, Black and Latino-owned small businesses are actually two times as likely to be considered you know, at risk or distressed financially. And this is according to research the Fed did right before we actually went into the COVID crisis. So why is that? Why is it that minority-owned businesses are, are more at risk in the small business? Is it because they're primarily in, in what type of sectors? Yeah, it's really, I think, a multi-sided story. First is that when you think about the industries like food services, accommodations, hospitality, you actually see a higher share of those businesses owned by minority small business owners. And those are the exact industries that sit at that tough intersection of being more vulnerable to the crisis because of the revenue shock that's happening, as well as just being kind of industries with slimmer margins and sort of tougher financial resiliency components. So, And then I think secondly is just, you know, we've also historically seen a, a troubling limited access to credit that compounds that underlying health challenge that minority-owned businesses face. So McKinsey's Deepa Mahajan's on the line. And, and, and folks, if you're just joining us, they put out the small business report. And by their estimate, based on analyzing surveys of small business owners, get this, 1.4 million to 2.1 million employer small businesses could close permanently. Wow. And there are 1.7 million small businesses that employ 20 million workers and earn 12% of U.S. business revenue in the sectors that are most vulnerable. One of the things in the report that your report does is you actually look at uh, the different states. What are some of the states that are going to be hardest hit by this from a small business perspective? Yeah, I mean, what we're really seeing is that the states that have the highest impact from COVID are really correlated with those where we see the highest amount of vulnerability. So if you think about, uh, for example, uh, New York or some of these other states that have really had to shut down in a a fairly dramatic way, uh, Michigan, New Jersey, the highest percentage of vulnerable small businesses are also sitting there because, frankly, it's been hard to make revenue. So what can policymakers do to follow up on that point in order to soften the blow for so many of these small businesses. I mean, here in the DMV region, I mean, you've, you've, you've seen restaurants close <laughs> down. We've seen just some horrible, horrible things. What can federal policymakers do and, and state policymakers do in order to soften the blow? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a policymaker or a politician, but our, I'd like to point out a few things that our data shows us. First is that, as you pointed out with those statistics, Small businesses are more important to the economy than we think. As employers, they provide employment to millions of people. They are unique opportunities for wealth creation and upward mobility. They are multipliers in our economy as suppliers and customers. And like you just said, they're also just the places many of us like to spend our money um, and are core part of our community lifeblood. As governments and business uh, leaders start to think about what they're actually going to do to help small businesses, I think they've got to, you know, start to consider, just like many of the policymakers we're seeing are looking at, how do you help with short-term recovery? And then how do you start investing in small businesses in innovative ways that can build their longer-term resiliency, right? Only 35% of small businesses even went into this crisis in a healthy financial state, which is the thing, you know, we will need to change not just in the short term, but in the long term. That's remarkable. And that bears repeating. Only 35% folks, of small businesses entered into this crisis financially healthy, financially fit, 
Wow. And, you know, I, I got I to ask you about this because I, I spend, you know, day after day talking to Republicans, talking to Democrats, especially those, you know, the French Hills of the world, uh, the Pat Toomey's of the world who are really serious about this, about this recovery. And, uh, you know, the Chris Coons of the world who are really working on this. And from a small business perspective, it is frustrating, I think, for policymakers that it's actually the small businesses who need the instant liquidity, who need the instant access to loans immediately. They need it yesterday, right? But because, for whatever reason, it's more difficult to get them access to these financial services programs, and it's easier to, to funnel it into the big businesses. Can I ask you, based upon the policies that you study, that you know about, or just from maybe how other countries have done this, is it possible to speed up the relief effort to somehow inject it immediately for small businesses who, as you rightly point out, aren't as financially fit or being able to stay viable in the long term as big companies are? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really great question. Um, and it's one a lot of people are thinking, I think, quite hard about. I've seen folks think about how do we accelerate receivable or payment terms and start to get creative about, for example, if you've bought something from a small business, instead of 90-day terms, looking at 30-day terms. There's some interesting data out there folks have done just really looking at how much capital could be injected into small businesses by simply accelerating payments businesses and governments were already planning to make, which I think is just an example of the kind of innovative ways we'll need to start to think about to drive short-term money into small businesses. But I just want to caution us, it's not just a short-term game. Frankly, now as we're entering month four of this crisis, there are going to be sectors which were not initially hit by this crisis, which are now going to start to really struggle. And so I think this is really that moment when getting creative about resiliency, about digital technology adoption, and about how we actually really upgrade small businesses and support them will be key. All right. Thank you, Deepa Mahajan of McKinsey. More next. I'm Kevin Cerulli. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Let's go over some local headlines of the day. Stocks rise in volatile trading. Oil snaps slide. U.S. cases rise fastest this month and the Sun Belt leading the way on that surge. Meanwhile, the president continuing to ignore the virus spike as the U.S. cases surge toward records and a result of policy. Policy. And in fact, top administration officials are saying that they are not going to be advocating for there to be another type of economic shutdown come the fall. Joining us on the line to break down all of this is Frank Masano. He is a partner at Bracewell's Policy Resolution Group. He is the former press secretary to several Republican lawmakers on Capitol Hill, including Indiana Senator Richard Lugar. Frank, how are you? How's the fam? I'm good, Kev. How are you? Good. I can't uh, you know what? I miss you. I'm, I really wow. I miss you. No one misses I love. Me. No I one love misses Kev, in, I, Frank. You know what else I miss? I miss the snacks. That's I all they miss, Frank. That's no, all they miss. I miss you, miss. too. 
I really do. Listen, I have the privilege, the luxury of being able to go into our headquarters. And uh, listen, I get the snacks. I've been eating enough snacks for all of us, Frank. I got to be honest. The chocolate. Actually, Sean put Kit Kats in the... uh, in the snack room, so there's Kit Kats for Ken. Anyway, oh Frank, what's I have go- to get in there. Yeah, well, I, you're not allowed because <laughs> I'll get in trouble <laughs> if I bring in any guests. Um, don't get me in trouble, Frank. Uh, what was I going to ask you? Oh, what's going on with the energy markets and the markets today? Wow, uh, there's a lot going on. I mean, you know, but the, the biggest uh, interesting thing is what we don't know, we don't know. And part of that is because... You know, we started to see recovery, right? We started to see demand increase. We started to see, um, we started to see uh, you know, people starting to drive again. We started to see people get on airplanes again. We were only 20% of capacity from where we were last year, but that was a massive uptick of where we were in March or in April. So we started to see all of that progress going forward and people starting to move again and, um, uh, you know, the oil starting to come back and demand starting to rise. But then again, now, you know, we've seen a second, when well, it's not really a second wave, but it's an expansion of uh, the virus into places uh, in the Sun Belt, as you said, and in Florida and other places. And there's a real question as to what kind of an impact that's going to have on this, you know, started this, this little tick up we've had, especially if a state like uh, Texas, where most of the energy industry is based, um, is, again, forced to, to kind of lock down again, which the governor is starting to talk about in areas like Houston and Dallas and, uh, you know, a lot of the suburban areas and where, where we have a lot of the energy industry based. So it's really interesting. We started to see that recovery. Um, and who knows uh, now um, where it's going to go, uh, given the, the kind of numbers they're seeing in places like um, in Texas and in, in Florida and in, in places in the Sun Belt where you're seeing a lot of the uh, cases increase. So it really is remarkable because prior to this, the geopolitics around the world, Saudi Arabia, Russia, really heavily insu- influencing the U.S. energy sector uh, and, and the response on that. And, and I guess I want to be delicate here in how I ask this question. But is there a concern that we could see some more international volatility uh, target the United States energy sector at a, at a moment when it, there is increasing uncertainty given the, as you pointed out, the rise in cases in some energy heavy parts of the country? Well, I mean, I think that's always a concern, of course. Um, but one of the things that we've seen is not only have we seen the demand start to increase and come back in people and, and places like the, in New England and other places where the recovery still seems to be going forward, we're seeing that recovery happen there. I think the, 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 so we will have some of that uh, recovery happening regardless of what's happening in other parts of the country, although but the second piece of this is we're starting, we were just starting to see some of the production decline start to slow down, right? So one of, there are two sides to this issue, as you know. One is the demand side, which collapsed completely, people not driving, people not flying, uh, people staying at home. Uh, the other side was the production side, where we basically had lots of, uh, of workers basically shut out of jobs because, the, you know, we were there was too much oil on the market. Of course, early on that was helped by uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and, and, and Russia dumping extra oil into the market, right? Well, that, you know, with the president and Congress and others putting pressure on them, that has 
slowed down. Um, but, you know, we still have an overabundance supply out there, too. So they're worried about that. Um, again, I think the biggest unknown and the biggest uncertainty is what will happen to demand in some of those big states in the Sun Belt. Uh, in, in, in Texas and in, in Florida. Those are uh, bigger concerns, I think, than, than uh, any kind of international thing. We are seeing a little bit of uh, some challenges with, um, w- w- you know, with some of the trade issues with Mexico. So, um, you know, earlier today, uh, refiners uh, sent a letter, uh, to, and, and I know that uh, uh, trade, trade rep uh, Lighthizer has also been talking to Mexico about the the trade traffic between Mexico and the U.S., um, and, we, you know, we, we send them a lot of gasoline, so a uh, refined product. So, um, you know, that's another issue that's starting to, to bubble up, too, and I think you'll see some of that uh, come into the, in, into the discussion as we go forward and discussions about the trade policy. So. I don't want to put you on the spot, so feel free to say no. You haven't, have you been following the Venezuela issue at all? Not really. You know, I yeah. mean, it's, uh, you know, it's really hard to – I we I know that there has been some uh, ships that have been sanctioned for exactly. supposedly carrying Venezuelan oil, um, you know. But you know, again, that that's a that's an outside factor compared to some of the big challenges we have going on right now with our own production capacity and then shut in, uh, you know, volun- in many cases voluntary shut ins that people are. Uh, are using versus and the demand side uh, slides we've seen and the worry that we may see more on the demand slide. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, those are much bigger challenges, much bigger concerns uh, that we're dealing with right now in the immediate in the immediacy than than other issues like Venezuela and, and yeah. how many ships they're sending out. Frank, Frank Rosano is on the line. He's a partner at Bracewell's Policy Resolution Group. I do want to ask you a political question, but I want to just uh, put, a, put an end point on this conversation as it relates to energy sector. What does the energy sector want from federal policymakers, especially as we're staring down the potential of another economic stimulus and there's so much uncertainty, so much volatility right now in the marketplace? Yeah, you know, the biggest, the biggest thing that they want policymakers to do is just to stay out of the way, right? Um, for, for so Good luck! Many, you've, you've, seen, you've seen on both sides of the, on both sides of the, uh, the Democrats and Republicans, them trying to do things that would have a de- uh, detrimental impact on both the demand side and the recovery uh, and the production side uh, and the trade issues. So I think for the most part, most of the industry at large would like uh, the market to do its work, would like the market to levelize, would like to see demand come back. And when that demand starts to come back, you'll see the recovery start to happen, right? We started to see that already early on, uh, and some of the evidence from EIA and this week's weekly report from API show that slide back up, right? Again, there's that uncertainty out there about what happens now as, as the COVID cases rise a little more. But the reality is, you know, there's no trade barriers. There's no uh, uh, legal protections. There's, no, there's nothing that Congress or policymakers could really do um, that the market isn't already doing. And I think that's what um, the message from the majority of the industry is there may be some here and and and, and you're seeing that too play out in in a lot of the the uh, the uh, the kind of aid that that has been given to businesses generally right businesses generally have been offered 
pay, pay PPP loans. They've been offered the Main Street Lending Program. And, uh, you know, I'm sure a handful of energy companies have been engaged in those things, too. But that's not anything specific to the energy industry, and that's not what the energy industry has asked for, right? They don't want anything specific. So I think the reality is they're, they're – they're hopeful that a do-no-harm policy is probably the best policy here that lets demand recover and lets production um, start to recover as well as the market comes back in many places, uh, even with the uncertainty we see in the new states and the, and the challenges they're facing. Frank Pisano, appreciate the time, buddy. Thanks for checking in with us to give us the lay of the land in the energy market. That's Frank Pisano. He's a partner at Bracewell's Policy Resolution Group. And coming up, we'll talk more policy and politics. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. And earlier today on the Senate floor, there was a bipartisan resolution that passed condemning China's national security law cracking down on Hong Kong. Um, Uh, Senator Josh Hawley, a Republican, tweeted out, Today the Senate speaks with one voice. China imperialism will not go unchallenged. Joining us on the line is my colleague Tom Orlick. He is Bloomberg Economics chief economist and author of the new book, China, the Bubble That Never Pops. Tom, congratulations on another book. Uh, I started reading it last night. It is incredibly, incredibly detailed and goes into the intricacies of the economic branch of the China Communist Party. And I want to ask you something because uh, in the excerpts of the book that you shared with me, um, you say, you, I mean, you lay it out very clearly. Uh, don't tell President Trump, but China is winning. Why do you think that? Well, let's think about how we're doing in the COVID-19 crisis, Kevin. Um, and first of all, sorry, I should say, delighted to be on the show. Thanks very much for having me. Anytime. Um, let's, let's think about how China is COVID-19 crisis. Um, So China, um, of course, there are some really serious questions about how much information China shared uh, as this was, um, as this crisis was kicking off, and if they were as transparent as they could have been with the international community. Um, But if we bring the clock forward to where we are now, China has brought its epidemic under control. Its economy has bounced back. Factory output in, in China is now back above the level it was before the before the crisis. Um, so I think China has demonstrated, in the face of this kind of extreme stress test, um, that they can move policy in the right way to contain the disease and to get the economy started again. I have to ask this follow-up question because I hear you in terms of the short-term um, but, but you started your answer with something questioning the transparency of the Communist Party of China. Xi Jinping was not transparent. The U.S. intelligence community has released countless reports illustrating uh, bipartisan. There have been questions from Republicans and Democrats. The presumptive Democratic presidential nominee, Joe Biden, uh, is saying that President Trump has not been tough enough 
against the China Communist Party. President Trump, for his part, says that Joe Biden would not be tough enough. So you've got a very you've got Republicans and Democrats and the intelligence community all on the same page uh, that China was not transparent whatsoever. When you play it from a long term strategy beyond just the economics, they are going to have to somehow play. Uh, they lost a generational argument, one can make the case, with a new generation of people in America who are deeply mistrusting of the Communist Party and will never trust them again, particularly when they hid information from not just the United States, but all around the world. At what point will that catch up to the Communist Party? So there is definitely a cost there. Um, uh, Joe Nye, um, the, the, the dean of the Kennedy School, where, where I studied a, a few years ago, talks about soft power and the power a country has, not because of its military, but because of its the sort of the resonance of its culture and the trust which people have in it. Um, and the United States still has, I, I think, some considerable reserves of soft power. Uh, and China does not have soft power. There's mistrust, uh, fear even, about what China's rise means for the rest of the world. Um, I think the question is, what meaningful action can the U.S. and other countries take, um, which would change behavior in China, which would move them onto a more transparent path? Um, and I think the answer to that, unfortunately, is it's very hard to do. Um, we've just come through a painful and bruising trade war between China and the United States. Um, and there was some progress. There was some agreements on intellectual property for example, um, but does the, does the U.S. have any traction to kind of fundamentally alter the way China manages its, its political and its internal affairs? Uh, I think the answer to that is a pretty clear no. Let me follow. I, I don't know. I, I think the jury's still out on that, Tom, because I think from a broader standpoint, at what price did China limit their ability to, I mean, they weren't transparent, and that's from, again, a consensus amongst the intelligence community and from criticisms from Trump and Biden, the one thing they agree on. Um, and, but beyond that, at what price? I mean, at what, you know, when you have, you know, whether it's Europe, whether it's the United States, I mean, and you have freedom and democracy, at what price does the Communist Party of China play, Tom, in terms of limiting their ability of, of citizens. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean, I, I mean, if, from a cultural perspective, it's not just about shareholder value. It's not just about, oh, let's, you know, get businesses back on track here. I mean, there's, you know, if you're, if you're keeping everyone inside and using, and you have Uyghurs in concentration camps, I mean, there's a lot of questions for them that I think over the long term, with the rise of India, for example, could be very significantly put them at risk. Yeah, I think those are, those are fair comments, Kevin. And I, I lived for 11 years in Beijing. Um, and for a number of those years, I lived next to the to the U.S. Embassy uh, in Beijing. And I can tell you that every morning uh, there was a line of hundreds of Chinese people um, outside the U.S. consulate queuing up to get a visa uh, to come and visit America. Um, and when I go to the Chinese consulate office in, in D.C., there is not a line of Americans queuing <laughs> up to go and visit China. That is a um, great point. That is a great that point. Tells, that tells you that tells you something really important, right? That tells you something really important, which goes beyond the economics and goes beyond the shareholder value. Um, but the the point I I kind of want to make in my book um, is, well, you know what? Because we have this kind of this negative lens through which we view China, because we view China through this kind of 
red mist of sort of difference between a democratic country and a market economy and an authoritarian party and a state-dominated economy. We miss the things that they are doing right. We miss the things that they are effective at in terms of managing their economic development, managing some of the risks in their financial sector. And because the U.S.-China relationship is really going to be the defining relationship of the 21st century, if we don't get it right in terms of understanding those things, then, then that's going to be a problem. Fascinating. Tom Orlick's on the line. He's Bloomberg Economics Chief Economist and author of the great new book, China, the Bubble That Never Pops. All right, Tom, let me ask you about the forecast for Q3 and Q4. You're talking about a stepped up economy. Tell me what that means. So China's in this interesting position, right, because they've controlled their virus um, and they are ready to get back to work. Their factories are operational again. But what's happened? Well, the virus is spread around the rest of the world, right? So the U.S., many parts of Europe, many parts of Asia are either still in lockdown or they're slowly emerging from that lockdown. So you've got this interesting kind of divided world, right? You've got China, which is ready to get back to work, but where's the demand going to come from? Who's going to export? Who's, who are they going to export from when the rest of the world is in depression or in recession? Um, and then you've got the rest of the world, which is still struggling with the control of the virus and is going to face a, a, a more arduous uh, and slower recovery. Wow, it really is remarkable. Tom, I read everything you write and I read all of your reports. So I very much appreciate you, my friend, making time for me this evening. That's Tom Orlick, everybody. He's Bloomberg's economics chief economist and author of the great new book, China, the Bubble That Never Pops. Go get it. China, the Bubble That Never Pops. I'm flying through it. China, the Bubble That Never Pops. That's the name of Tom Orlick's new book. Uh, tomorrow on Bloomberg Radio Sound On, we have uh, Congressman Mike McCall. He is a Republican, top Republican on House Foreign Affairs, Foreign Relations Committee, and Senator Joni Ernst, a Republican from Iowa. So you don't want to miss that. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Jason Kelly for LeBron. It's a Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.